Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the care of patients with brain tumors with Dr. Mary Barden. Dr. Barden is an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So Mary, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Sure. So I am uh, one of the newest uh, faculty members in neuro-oncology at the Smilo Cancer Center in Yale New Haven Hospital. I've actually been at Yale for over 10 years now. I I came here for medical school and then just never left. So I've done all my medical training here. Um, I have a very strong interest in uh, medical education, which is part of the reason that I've uh, stuck around uh, teaching residents, teaching fellows, and trying to recruit more uh, smart neuro-oncologists to the field. Um, Much of my clinical time is spent actually in the hospital, inpatient. I'm the uh, sort of neuro-onc hospitalist uh, among the group. So Every other week or so, about 50% of the year, I'm on service in the hospital seeing patients with new brain tumor diagnoses, complications from their known brain tumors, uh, neurologic complications from treatments for other cancers, a whole variety of things. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a good year so far. So let's talk a little bit more about brain tumors. Um, can you kind of give us the landscape of what we see in terms of brain tumors? I mean, I, I suspect that um, some brain tumors may arise from the brain itself and be primary brain cancers, and and other brain tumors may be spread from other cancers. So can you kind of give us the landscape of um, what you see in terms of brain cancers? Absolutely. So the main distinction, you really uh, hit the nail on the head. And when I describe it to patients, I I describe it exactly that. You have really two types of of cancers or tumors, I should say, that you can have in the brain. And one is a tumor that starts in the brain and grows there. And that's what we would call a primary brain tumor. And then one that starts somewhere else in the body and then metastasizes to the brain. And uh, when you look at the category of primary brain tumors, you can divide those further into what we call cancerous or malignant uh, primary brain tumors, and then a non-cancerous or benign uh, primary brain tumors. And actually, the majority uh, of primary brain tumors in adults are going to be the non-cancerous or benign type. Over half of those are what we call meningiomas, um, which are tumors that grow from the uh, lining of the brain called the meninges. And when we look at the malignant side of primary brain tumors, about half of those are going to be what we call glioblastoma, um, which is a a high-grade glioma um, tumor of the brain. And these are treated very differently uh, than brain tumors that are from metastasized from somewhere else in the body. Um, So the approaches are quite different. So it's important to know which one we're dealing with. So let's take a step back and kind of Um, walk through the journey of a a patient. So how do these brain tumors, whether primary or secondary, whether benign or malignant, present? I mean, um, it's not like, you know, people can go for a brain scan every year, just like they go for a mammogram every year and find their brain cancer early. So how do these get picked up? Exactly. So I'll say 
first, you know, you make a great point. And one of the things that's so challenging about these primary brain tumors is we don't have the same screening mechanisms, uh, modifiable, modifiable risk factors that we've identified for them, uh, as opposed to some of the other systemic cancers. You know, there's things like smoking, exposure to UV light. We know that puts patients in a certain risk category for different types of cancers, and they can be screened appropriately for it. Because primary brain tumors have been so elusive in terms of what causes them, we don't have those robust screening measures in place. And so, like you say, it's not there's not a role for doing you know an MRI every year or something of that nature uh, to to look for it. So, how does it present? Uh, it can be a variety of things. Uh, one way it often presents, and how I describe it to patients, is almost like a slow. Uh, symptoms of a stroke. Many patients know symptoms of stroke. They're taught this by their primary care doctors or, uh, you know, educational campaigns look for facial droop, weakness on one side of the body, uh, severe symptoms of dizziness, difficulty with language or speech. Uh, all of those things that, you know, would be concerning for a stroke in an acute setting equally apply to a brain tumor. Usually when they're related to a brain tumor, they're going to come on a bit more slowly, um, sort of over days to weeks and progressively get worse. And at some point, patients usually realize this is something that's not going away. This is not normal. And that's when they'll uh, come in either through their primary care doctor who will order a scan or they'll come into the emergency department itself. Uh, seizures are another way uh, brain tumors can present. Um, uh, grows to a certain point if it's in a particular area of the brain where it irritates uh, those cells at the surface of the brain and it can generate a seizure. So an adult patient will perhaps have the first seizure they've ever had in their life and come in for evaluation for that and uh, the brain tumor will be discovered. Uh, sometimes in elderly patients, the symptoms can be very nonspecific uh, and Sometimes it's almost as if a patient has a rapidly progressive dementia. You know, their family brings them in and says they've really declined. They're not taking care of themselves at home like they used to. They're not as independent. And really, that's a stark change for the patient over the past uh, several weeks. And they'll be worked up for that and get a scan that shows the tumor. The other caveat I would say is the location of the tumor in the brain plays a big role in how it presents. Uh, you know, of course, different areas of the brain are responsible for different things. And so a tumor in the language center is going to present as difficulties with speech, either producing it or understanding it. Uh, a tumor in the motor area of the brain is going to result in weakness. And there are some tumors that present in relatively silent uh, areas of the brain. So most of us are what we call left side dominant uh, in the brain. That's where our language and all the ways we sort of communicate with the world are on the left side for the majority of population. So when tumors present on the non-dominant or for most patients, the right side, and especially in quiet areas like towards the back of the brain called the parietal lobe, these tumors can grow for a while before patients even notice that they're having symptoms. And sometimes they don't notice it at all. It's the people around them. And so when when you pr have these symptoms and and you go to your doctor and your doctor gets a, a scan of your brain, um, presumably a mass or, or a tumor shows up on the brain scan. How is that worked up further to figure out whether this is benign or malignant and, and what category it kind of falls into? So typically once, once the tumor is identified, either... Often it will happen outpatient and their primary care physician will send the patient into the hospital um, to be evaluated, or if they've come into the ER, we'll identify it here. But the first step will be uh, one, a neuro-oncologic consultation. So someone like myself would see the patient in the hospital, but two, we involve our neurosurgical colleagues um, and really they get a, a look at 
depending on the location and how infiltrative into the brain this tumor is, what makes the most sense in terms of getting a diagnosis. And what that means is, is this something that the surgeon has to go in and resect in its entirety? Is that even possible? Is this something that we should start with a biopsy, um, which is a bit uh, less of an invasive uh, neurosurgical procedure? And so we as neuro-oncology work closely with the neurosurgeons and then also together with the patient um, to discuss the risks of different approaches and, and what makes the most sense. I will say uh, for patients that have uh, a known cancer elsewhere in the body, uh, we have a high index of suspicion that the t a tumor that appears in the brain is likely related to that. And so we may be a bit uh, less aggressive in terms of a surgery and, and explore therapies uh, for that cancer that can penetrate into the brain and address the tumor that way. Uh, radiation is another approach that we'll use for uh, metastases and can sometimes avoid uh, doing surgery if we have some certainty of the diagnosis. So... In which cases would you do surgery first for a diagnosis? I mean, I, I can imagine that if you, you know, started to have symptoms, you went, you got a brain scan, they found a mass. Before I would be like, yeah, let's go and take out part of my brain. I'd want to know what it was. So are, are there circumstances in which you would proceed to surgery first before getting a biopsy Um radiologically with, you know, a needle, um, that would make sense? Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. So I'll start by saying that we're pretty good. We in the, you know, the neurosurgeons, the neuro-oncologists and our neuroradiologists are pretty good at getting a sense of whether something is benign or malignant based on the way that it looks on an MRI. Uh, that's not always the case. And there've been some that are, can be a bit mysterious, but generally speaking, we can at least get a sense of what category a tumor falls into and what type uh, it may be. And so a, a good example of that would be uh, looking at a, at a new tumor on an MRI and saying, is this a glioma or a glioblastoma, or is this something like a lymphoma in the brain? Those are two things that are managed very differently. If we look at something and are concerned that it's a glioma, one, we have a high index suspicion based on how, that it, looks, how it looks on the MRI. Uh, and the management of that is going to be primarily surgical. And we want to minimize the number of surgeries that a patient has. So if we have that high index of suspicion based on the way that it looks and the way that a patient has presented, typically the intention will be to go and remove all of it um, because that's the best way to treat or at least start to treat this disease is to remove as much of the tumor as possible. Now, whenever these surgeries are done, the surgeons will go in and you know they do their craniotomy to remove a piece of the skull, but they send off a, a small piece of the tumor right away to a pathologist who's on call. They look at it under a microscope. They confirm that we're in the general category of tumor that we thought we were, or benign, malignant, glioma, lymphoma. And once they've confirmed that for the surgeon, the surgeon's still in the OR, the patient's still there. Once that's been confirmed, then the surgeon can continue to proceed to do the resection as they planned. If we have a high index of suspicion that something is, uh, for example, a lymphoma, and that's something that's not treated by removing uh, the tumor. Uh, that's something that we can shrink away with chemotherapy and radiation. We would plan only to do the biopsy and we would start with that, send off a sample and then review the finalized pathology and treat that way. Some cases, they do have to go back in for a second surgery if that preliminary pathology is not what we anticipated it would be. But by and large, we're 
get it right on the first try and we're able to minimize the number of surgeries that a patient has. It's not a benign thing to undergo a brain surgery. And so we want to, you know, minimize the number of times that happens. Yeah. So I can, that, that certainly makes sense. So, um, so for patients who present with these symptoms, right, that are caused by pressure or, or erosion of parts of the brain, you know, one would imagine that when you actually go to resect that area of the brain, that you actually lose that par- portion of the brain and, and the function of that brain. So I can imagine that many patients would ask you, well, right now, you know, maybe I'm having difficulty with speech or I'm having difficulty, uh, I'm having seizures or I'm having whatever it is um, that's controlled by the part of the brain where this tumor is. If you go and remove that portion of the brain, am I not then going to have permanent issues regarding the same area? Yeah, so that's a it's a great point, and it is something that one of the things that patients are most concerned about when we start talking about surgery, right? Is what am I going to to look like, or how am I going to be able to function on the other side of this? And again, it all comes down to the type of tumor, because uh, different tumors will infiltrate into the brain in different ways, or not infiltrate at all, be very sort of circumscribed uh, and on their own. But the idea of the surgery is to do, to get what we need for uh, tissue diagnosis, to get, get what we need for a diagnosis, but without removing or damaging any healthy brain. So if anything, again, depending on the tumor type, we would hope for perhaps some improvement in symptoms afterwards, or at least stable symptoms as the ones that they've been already having. Of course, as with any procedure, uh, surgery, there's always risks, and I I would certainly defer uh, to the neurosurgeons who actually do these procedures what those risks are, but uh, it's it's always something that's discussed ahead of time, how risky something is in terms of bleeding or stroke related to the surgery. But just removing the tumor itself is not a a guarantee and certainly is is not expected that patients will have uh, new or worsened symptoms after the surgery. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about the care of patients with brain cancer in honor of Brain Cancer Awareness Month with my guest, Dr. Mary Barden. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their melanoma program brings together an extensive multidisciplinary team to diagnose, treat, and care for patients with melanoma and other skin cancers. SmiloCancerHospital.org. Over 230,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer this year, and in Connecticut alone, there will be over 2,700 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Each day, patients with lung cancer are surviving thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they have ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the BATTLE-2 trial at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Mary Barden. 
We're talking about the care of patients with brain cancers in honor of Brain Cancer Awareness Month. So right before the break, Mary, we were talking about um, the different types of brain cancers and the fact that for some brain cancers, just based on the MRI alone, you can kind of tell that these are the kind of cancers that need to be treated with surgery. And you were mentioning that, you know, Surgery, while there may be some trepidation about undergoing surgery for a brain cancer, simply, you know, thinking about loss of function, that that frequently these are due to compressive symptoms, not infiltrative symptoms. Is that right? So in other words, when the, the surgeon goes to remove the cancer, oftentimes patients can actually do better because they are removing the thing that is pushing on healthy brain that is causing the patient's current symptoms rather than taking out brain that may have been infiltrated by the cancer such that they lose uh, function. is that, Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, no, I think you summarized it uh, nicely. The uh, majority of, uh, of tumors are, are quite well circumscribed, and really the symptoms that they're causing are from compression on the brain. And so that's going to include metastases. Uh, most of their symptoms are, are from compression, and most of the benign uh, primary brain tumor types like meningioma. And so once those tumors are removed or treated and that mass effect is relieved, the symptoms can get a lot better. In terms of uh, gliomas, uh, which are the primary tumors of the brain that can be more malignant and infiltrative, we expect patients to at least have be stable after the surgery. Um, you know, their symptoms are no worse, uh, but won't necessarily improve afterwards just because of the nature of the tumor. Hmm. So uh, l- let's talk a little bit about um, uh, something that you just mentioned, which is brain metastases. So these are cancers that may have spread to the brain from other parts of the body. Is is um, metastasectomy or surgery for these um, brain metastases commonplace, or or are these more frequently treated with chemotherapy? And if it can be either or, how do you kind of approach that in terms of deciding which is better? So there's a lot of things that factor into it, uh, one of which is the sheer size and number of brain metastases. It's more often in a case of metastasis that you'll see more than one tumor in the brain, as opposed to primary brain tumors where they're more isolated, a solitary tumor. And so I would say for patients that have one or two rather sizable metastases, and especially ones that are causing them a lot of symptoms, often uh, we will recommend starting with surgery just in the interest of getting out as much of the cancer cells as we can, relieving their symptoms and putting them in a good starting point uh, for additional therapies, namely radiation and chemotherapy. On the flip side, if a patient has uh, you know, many uh, metastases to the brain or many that are small, then you know, we can't, going in and doing surgeries to remove all of them is, is just not feasible. It wouldn't be something that a patient can tolerate. And so if they're small enough and uh, there's there's a you know significant amount of them, then we may just go ahead and, and start with radiation. And if later down the line, a patient or a, a t- one of the tumors grows larger, becomes more symptomatic, then we may go back and remove it at a later point. Uh, 
There's another uh, form of radiation uh, that the neurosurgeons work with the radiation oncologists to do called uh, gamma knife, uh, stereotactic radiosurgery uh, that we do here. And this is often employed uh, for brain metastases as well in conjunction uh, with their removal. And so we'll have a patient that comes in with a sizable metastasis that's causing them symptoms. The neurosurgeons will remove it, and then we'll do radiation uh, a few days afterwards to that uh, cavity where the tumor was removed from really to get any remaining cancer cells uh, down and dormant. And yeah, I think that's really what factors into it is, is the number of tumors, the size of them, and also the patient and self uh, themselves, how, how uh, you know, able they are to tolerate a major surgery. You had mentioned that um, a number of cancers may be treated with chemotherapy. So either those that have metastasized, because presumably the way that the metastasis got to the brain was uh, through the systemic circulation. It had to get there from a distant organ um, in order to metastasize to the brain. And there are some brain cancers that um, may be treated with chemotherapy as well. One of the questions that our audience might have is, you know, some of us have heard about this thing called the blood-brain barrier, um, which evolutionarily, I suppose, was really designed to keep toxins out of the brain, um, but may also um, inhibit chemotherapy from getting into the, the brain itself. So can you talk a little bit about how you treat um, brain cancers with chemotherapy? Are there certain chemotherapies that can get through the blood-brain barrier? And how much of a problem is that for you? Yes. Yeah, so the, the blood-brain barrier, I think it's, you're absolutely right. It's something that evolved with us to protect the brain and the central nervous system from uh, outside insults like infection, but has proven itself to be a bit of a barrier when we want to treat cancer in that compartment. I will say over you know over the past decade or so that one of the the advances that we've been able to make with uh, primary brain brain cancer but also metastases is finding better ways to penetrate that blood brain barrier and get chemotherapies immunotherapies and treatments into that space and you know a lot of it depends on uh, how um, the the dose of a chemotherapy agent, if it's a high enough dose, where it will penetrate the blood-brain barrier, or if an immunotherapy, sometimes it requires a particular antibody conjugate to cross the blood-brain barrier. There are a lot of ways of getting around it, and we're better at doing that more and more. I will say that crossing the blood-brain barrier is mostly an issue for treating metastatic cancers. Um, you know, we want a systemic therapy that addresses the cancer elsewhere in the body, but also gets into the central nervous system. It's probably less of the issue that we have with treating uh, primary brain tumors, namely glioma and glioblastoma. It's What's really emerged is the the real challenge uh, with those types of tumors and what we've learned uh, within the past several years is the environment that these glioblastomas create around themselves in the brain. Not only are they protected by the blood-brain barrier, but we've learned they sort of control the immune, what we call the immune microenvironment uh, around the tumor, and it almost suppresses the, the immune system that the brain does have in a within the range of, of brain that's around the tumor itself. And it's become clear that that's really one of the main things that's made it 
so difficult for us to advance our treatments of this. And one of the ways we discovered this is the immunotherapies that have been introduced and been you know, so successful in things like melanoma and lung cancer. You know, the great hope was that those would have a similar effect on primary brain cancers as well. And so trials were done with those immunotherapies with glioblastomas and did not have the uh, exciting effects that we we had hoped for. And by virtue of sort of looking and figuring out why that was, we realized that the these brain tumors sort of shut down the immune system around it. And that is really one of the, the things that we're trying to, to work around in terms of uh, developing better treatments uh, for glioblastomas. So blood-brain barrier, but uh, I think probably the, the bigger challenge, the bigger boss that we've come to have to face is this uh, immune microenvironment that these tumors are creating around themselves. How do you manage these glioblastomas aside from surgery and radiation, which presumably can get to the tumor? These are primary brain cancers that potentially could could grow, could spread. So is there any role for any systemic therapy in these in these glioblastomas and and if so how do you approach that so the the management of glioblastoma is i say unfortunately is the same as it has been for the past 15, 20 years or so. And when I say the management, I mean the standard of care sort of first line management. It's been very challenging to find something that works. And right now there's only four FDA approved drugs for it. There's really a gold standard regimen that we use in the first phase of of treating a glioblastoma, which I'll I'll get to in a minute. But by and large, what we rely on uh, for patients is the addition of clinical trials to investigate other things that can help us do better in terms of overall survival, progression-free survival, helping these patients live longer, more neurologically intact lives. Uh, In terms of how we manage it and sort of this gold standard regimen that we've had for years, uh, usually what that encompasses is a, a what that involves entails is a patient after they've had their surgery and recovered from it, which is a matter of weeks, uh, we go, uh, we put them on a course of radiation uh, to the brain, specifically to the area where the tumor was, not the whole brain. And together with the radiation, they take an oral chemotherapy pill called uh, temozolomide or temodar. And this is anywhere you go, you diagnose with a glioblastoma, this is going to be the first line uh, treatment. There's different variations to it depending on age, the dose of radiation, or how long the radiation uh, is spread out over can change. But generally speaking, patients will get the Temodar and the radiation together for a period of three to six weeks. And then after that, we'll be treated with cycles of the Temozolomide. And again, just a pill. It's an alkylating agent, pretty old school chemotherapy drug. But it's the only thing that's shown to definitively uh, improve uh, patients' overall survival and uh, delay uh, tumor relapse. There's sort of two entry points, I would say, for clinical trials uh, for patients with glioblastoma. One is at the time of first diagnosis, and usually clinical trials in that setting will involve this standard of care treatment. So patients will still get res- uh, radiation, they'll still get temozolomide, but then whatever clinical trial drug or, or, or treatment is, is included will be tacked on to that. Uh, patients at recurrence after they've received initial phase of treatment. That's also an entry point for clinical trials. And at that point, it's often just the clinical trial drug itself. Sometimes other therapies can be uh, uh, looped into it that are more standard of care. But uh, often patients will just be on a novel agent um, on those recurrent clinical trials. 
So tell us a bit more about the clinical trials and and are there agents that are currently in clinical trials that you're particularly excited about? Yes. So we have we have a few clinical trials going on at Yale. Those are the ones I'm, I'm most familiar with, but some are, are unique to our institution and there are some that uh, are more wider effort and we're one institution of many that are, are taking part of them. Uh, but one that I'm excited about is actually a multi-arm trial. It's called GBM Agile. And it's a it's a phase two, well, more of a phase three at this point, it's sort of finished the, the phase two aspect, but it's a phase three clinical trial that's investigating a whole number of, of novel uh, therapeutic agents in different arms. And so there's multiple uh, pharmaceutical companies that are collaborating with the sponsor. And uh, we just opened two new arms of this trial here at Yale. One is for a drug called uh, trorilazole, which is a, a pro-drug of something that's actually been approved for uh, ALS. And the idea is that is it sort of modulates um, uh, uh, GABA, which is a, a neurotransmitter in the brain. Uh, and then uh, another arm they just opened up is a, uh, something called VT1021, which is a, a novel drug. Uh, drug that affects that immune microenvironment that I was talking about before. So I'm excited to see how these things pan out. And we, you know, we have patients that were enrolling here for that trial, and then they're being enrolled in other institutions elsewhere. And so there'll be, you know, more to come for that. Dr. Mary Barden is an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.